Welcome, everybody, to the December Extra AF, the last one of 2020. She over. (laughs) I'm Keena. And I'm Ashley. Yes. So this is the last one of the year. I'm cautious to say anything about 2021 because I don't want to jinx anything. I just want to be like, I just, I just want to go into it and say, Hey, 2021, I love you. Yes. I hope good things for you. You're beautiful. Wonderful. Yes. Yes. And we could all just sneak in really slow. No sudden movements. 100% planning on screaming Jumanji when midnight hits. That is a solid game plan. Yeah. Just in case. Just in case. Maybe. I think we all have to say it together to make it work, though. Open your door because it's an Irish tradition to open your door to let out the old year and bring in the new one. Yes. Jumanji. Yes. My mom was, she's making a grocery list. She's going to eat everything that brings luck. Yep. <laughs> all of it. So she was very excited about it. I went ahead and made black eyed peas on Christmas and we're eating them this whole week. <laughs> Hot take. I hate beans. Just all of them. Don't like them. So mom's like, what's wrong with you? You're going to ruin the year because you won't eat them. And I'm like, well. <laughs> Have you had black eye pea dip? No. You could like blend them up and kind of make like a hummus. I do like hummus. So chickpeas I'm okay with. I just don't like the texture. I don't know. It just, they just freak me out. I don't like peas. It is a weird texture, but I've got my black eye peas already made. I've got my carrots. I've got my greens all ready to go. I'm going to make, I'm even ready to like make Terry walk into the house before I do on New Year's Day. The house before you. Well, while we're talking about it, I did look it up today just for my own nerdy things, all the things you can do to bring in luck. So let me read some of the ones we haven't mentioned because there's a few more. Uh, 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 Let me pull it up. Wear red underwear. Okay. This is from Spain and Italy. It says it brings good luck. So. Let's do that. Eating 12 grapes at midnight. Apparently for each chime of the stroke of midnight, you eat a grape. And it's supposed to give you good luck for the 12 following months. But apparently if you don't make it and get them all in, then you're fucked. Which I can't (laughs) I'll be unlucky. Womp womp. There's, um, oh, this one's really neat. I think this is Columbia. So in Columbia, they walk around with an empty suitcase, and that is supposed to symbolize filling it with adventure and travel the next year. Oh, that's cool. I like that. I like that one, too, especially because there's been no travel or adventure. So let's just let's all carry around a suitcase around our house, see what happens. And this one's also lovely. So in Denmark, at midnight... Like, right at the stroke of midnight, everybody jumps off a chair so that you're in the air at midnight. Huh. And that way, your feet is firmly planted on the ground when you land in the next year. I would literally tear my ACL. <laughs> <laughs> it, this one is like, this should only be attempted by sober people. I thought that was funny. Yeah, I would be sober and still tear my ACL. Oh, a thousand percent. In Greece, people hurl pomegranates on the ground at the stroke of midnight. And then the piece, the more pieces of fruit that burst into like other pieces means more abundance you can expect in the coming year. Oh, so you gotta like spike it. Yeah, pomegranates are tricky bitches. They are They're very hard to eat. <laughs> Dress up like bears. 
I can get behind that. <laughs> it's in Romania, dressing up in a bear costume and dancing from house to house is a tradition meant to keep evil at bay. Okay. Although, <laughs> if, you, if you don't tell people that you're doing that and you just show up at their house dressed like a bear, I'm sure they're going to have questions. <laughs> I'm, gonna do it. I'm just going to show up dressed as a bear. Your exit pursued by bear. <laughs> in Chile, they have a tradition of camping in graveyards on New Year's Eve. So you can start off the new year with your deceased friends and family. Aww. That's cool. That is cool. I like that. In Switzerland, people drop a scoop of ice cream on the floor at midnight to manifest abundance in the coming year. It's a lot of food on the floor. Seems like a waste of good ice cream. Yeah. Reggie would be pumped. <laughs> this is my time. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> like I am abundant. Uh, and then countries like Bolivia, Greece, and uh, it just says, and other countries. It's considered good luck to bake coins into desserts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kind of like the baby and the cake and Mardi Gras. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. And I did see that, like, king cakes can be eaten as early as you're supposed to eat them. I think January 6th is the yep. day you start eating yeah, them. Yeah. That's, that's the date that everyone down here is going to start selling them. You're a prime king cake country now. Oh, yeah. No. I used to hate king cake until I moved here and had like a legit king cake last year. And now I'm obsessed. Oh, yum. I, I want a king cake now. There's a place here that does keto king cake that is delicious. Yum. And it's called Prep Cakes. If y'all are in Shreveport and you have not gone to Prep Cakes, you need to. It's They do keto and like low carb desserts, but they are fucking phenomenal. I wonder if they ship. <laughs> I think they might. I'll Google because <laughs> I am here for that. I, well, anyway, that's enough. But yeah, that's a lot of good luck stuff. So let us know what you're doing to bring in. Yeah. That'd be fun to see what everybody's traditions are. Like we're Southern, so it's definitely black eyed peas and collard greens. And Yep. Anywho, do you want to go first with what happened this month historically? Yeah. Yet? So I am going to read you an article from ABC News. It is called Kazmikia Corbett, an African-American woman, is praised as key scientist behind COVID-19 vaccine. So this is something that happened this month. This came out on December 13th. Technically, it's something that's like happened this entire year, but this was reported on this month. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm going with. I will say that at the end of this article, there's kind of a cringy quote from Dr. Anthony Fauci. Oh no. Get through it together. It comes off as very like, hey, my fellow kids, but um, we'll get through it together. <laughs> but we stand a POC scientist. So here we go. Yes. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the na nation's top infectious disease expert and a constant presence on TV during the coronavirus pandemic, was asked a blunt question during a forum hosted last week by the National Urban League. Can you talk about the input of African-American scientists in the vaccine process? Fauci did not hesitate when giving his answer. The very vaccine that's one of the two that has absolutely exquisite levels, 94 to 95% efficacy against clinical disease and almost 100% efficacy against serious disease that are shown to be clearly safe, that vaccine was actually developed in the Institute's Vaccine Research Center by a team of scientists led by Dr. Barney Graham and his close colleague, Dr. Kazmikia Corbett or Kizzy Corbett, Fauci told the forum. Also, I'm sick and I'm like breathing really heavy, so I'm sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of breath. 
Kizzy is an African-American scientist who is right at the forefront of the development of the vaccine. Corbett is an expert on the front lines of the global race for a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine and someone who will go down in history as one of the key players in developing the science that could end the pandemic. She is one of the National Institute of Health's leading scientists behind the government's search for a vaccine. Corbett is part of a team at NIH that worked with Moderna, the pharmaceutical company that developed one of the two in mRNA vaccines that has shown to be more than 90% effective. Moderna's vaccine is expected to receive emergency use authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration this month. The other mRNA vaccine developed by Pfizer won emergency use authorization from the FDA on Friday. As of now, the coronavirus has killed nearly 300,000 people and infected more than 15 million people in the U.S. alone. Even before Corbett took on one of the most challenging tasks of her professional career, she was a force to be reckoned with. As a student, she was selected to participate in Project SEED, a program for gifted minority students that allowed her to study chemistry in labs at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and eventually landed a full ride to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, according to the Washington Post. Corbett spent her summers at laboratories and earned a summer internship at the NIH, the very place where she would be instrumental in developing a vaccine for the coronavirus. After graduating, Corbett enrolled in a doctorate program at UNC Chapel Hill, where she worked as a research assistant studying virus infections and eventually received a PhD in microbiology and immunology, according to her LinkedIn page. Wow, that's really impressive. Right? What a badass lady. Her work with such pathogens began when she joined the NIH's Vaccine Research Center as a postdoctoral fellow in 2014. She told ABC News that she could have never anticipated what she has since been able to accomplish on Fauci's team. The reason that I started to work in coronavirus was not to ever develop a vaccine, but really to have such a strong understanding in vaccine immune responses that we could potentially develop one, she said. This year, Corbett said she has had to put her last six years of training to work. In early January, with the knowledge that there was a respiratory outbreak in the Wuhan district of China, Dr. Barney Graham started sending emails essentially telling me and the team to buckle up, Corbett said. Early in the pandemic, when Fauci predicted the world might see an effective vaccine in about a year, Corbett said she knew it was possible. It was certainly doable if all the things and all the pieces of the puzzle came together. Corbett first made headlines on March 3rd as part of a team of scientists who spoke with President Donald Trump at the NIH. At the time, the global impact of the COVID-19 crisis had yet to be felt in America. Corbett said that her participation during that event with the president marked an important step forward for young scientists and people of color. I felt like it was necessary to be seen and to not be a hidden figure, so to speak, Corbett said. I felt that it was important to do that because of the level of visibility that it would have to younger scientists and also to people of color who have often worked behind the scenes and essentially who have done the dirty work for these large efforts towards vaccine. This person who looks like you has been working on this for several years and I also wanted it to be visible because I wanted people to understand that I stood by the work that I'd done for so long as well, she added. Fauci said Corbett's role as one of the scientists behind the vaccine should be a sign of hope for Black Americans who are hesitant to trust the vaccine. Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, Black communities have been infected and killed at a 
disproportionate rate across the country, according to the CDC. But according to a November Axios Ipsos poll, only 55% of Black Americans said that they would take a vaccine if it was proven safe and effective by officials. And here's Fauci's quote. (laughs) So the first thing you might want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're going to be taking was developed by an African-American woman. And that is just a fact. I'm really proud of Kizzy Corbett. She's a badass lady. And phenomenal. I, I'm so glad that they've kind of given her the spotlight to, you know, showcase her education and the hard work and, like right. a lot of times, you know, the face of all this, you know, everybody knows Fauci, but it's really cool to see other people. Yes. And like the thing is that I kind of had to dig. I had seen just one mention briefly on Facebook of um, an African-American woman being involved and someone saying like her name is, is Kizzy Corbett, put some respect on her name. Ooh. And so I was like, okay, um, I need to do some more research. And when I started looking it up, they were trying to say that the people that were responsible for getting the vaccine out there was this married couple who's a scientific scientist team, but it was actually Kizzy who isolated the mRNA and did the actual legwork. She wasn't the one that like they're putting out there as the main benefactor and everything, but she's the one that did the work. Like she, like she said, she doesn't want to just be a hidden figure and she shouldn't. Oh, absolutely not. It's awful and that we're going through COVID and everything, but it like, it makes me really hopeful that not only do we have like women in these positions of power to do these things, like women behind the scenes doing these things, but like, it just, it just makes me happy. Yeah. Cause women in STEM just in general, and then it's even harder for women of color in STEM. Like yep. it's a rocky, rocky road to get to anywhere because I guess it's been a part of our society for so long that women aren't good at science or women aren't good at math and yeah. we're not encouraged to enter these fields. And then people just, it's like roadblocks the whole time. So it's just an uphill battle. So that's just so ph- phenomenal. Her background is wow. <laughs> yes. I mean, she, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Like everything mm-hmm. she's done, everything she will do from here. Oh yeah. And like the fact that this virus is very tricky and we don't really know much about viruses to begin with. This is just incredible. Her research went into creating both the Moderna and the Pfizer. That's vaccines. cool. Yeah. yeah. Instead of just one or the other. I mean, it was the spearhead for both of them. Well, that's so exciting that she isolated. It was like that piece yes. of the puzzle that like once that happened, everything else clicked. And that is just so exciting. Yes, and imagine the moment, like what sh- what was going through her head, <laughs> like just be like, oh my god, I did it! Like how freaking cool. Also, here's two other fun facts of things that have happened. This, I mean, recently, the second person to receive the COVID vaccine in England, his name was William Shakespeare. <laughs> that is too fun. <laughs> and then Dolly Parton. Her funding went into the Moderna vaccine, but she found out at the same time all the rest of us did because she just pays to like fund the research out of that lab and like didn't know it was specifically going towards that until she like everybody like the news broke that her name was on the research. That's amazing. Dolly is a phenomenal human. Yes, she is. How much money she gives to like libraries? Her yes. 
Imagine the library. Yeah, that's what you should do if you're rich, you know? Yes. I read something somewhere about how Dolly Parton isn't a billionaire because she gives so much money away. Yeah, yeah. I really hope that Kizzy Corbett isn't kind of whitewashed out of the history books. Yeah. I'm worried that she will be. And that's why, like, I wanted so badly to read that article. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, she definitely, like, deserves the credit. And they better be studying her for years to come. Yeah. And that's just, you know, we got to hold people accountable, the historians that are writing this history. And, you know, yeah. news articles, you know, if you catch one talking about it and they leave her out, then you just hop into those comments. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You left out a person because it works. You know, you can send in requests for revisions of stories and stuff. Mm -hmm. So if your hometown writes about this and they leave her out, you can, uh, at the very bottom of the page, it's like, send us, where can we fix this? Yeah. Yeah. I encourage everyone to do that. If you like are certain that there's something wrong with an article or like they're not including the right credentials like you should definitely write in and be like hey you need to fix this yeah and it's just like a little thing we can do to just you know hold people accountable and make sure the right people go down in history because we all know that doesn't happen very often so going forward the history we're making now we can all make sure that we're loud enough that they can't ignore it exactly just gotta be loud be proud yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So things that happened this month in history are all fucking depressing. And um, it was a lot of war and a lot of beheadings. And I just wasn't feeling it. So we're going to talk about booze. Woo-hoo! So December 31st, 1759, Ireland's most famous drink is born. Oh. Oh, Guinness. <laughs> Yum. So this is really interesting to me, and I did not know this. So on the last day of 1759, a young man signed a 9,000-year lease on a dilapidated brewery on James Street, Dublin, for which he agreed to pay the sum of 45 pounds a year. 9,000 That's year. awesome. That's impressive <laughs> that's some forethought i don't think anything very far ahead but oh. like that's some serious forethought i i bow down to you sir his name was arthur guinness and he now enjoys near legendary salad salad that's not even close to <laughs> status not salad can you tell i'm hungry <laughs> legendary status in the republic of ireland he was a member of the island's Protestant Anglo-Irish elite. His father was a land steward for the Archbishop of Cashel. Cashel? It's Irish, it's so I'm probably way off. Cashel? But Arthur had decided to make his living as a brewer. Like, no, daddy. I don't want to go into the family business. I want to make beer. You know? I'm my own man. Yeah. <laughs> Since at the time there were already 70 breweries in Dublin, it might have been thought that Guinness stood little chance of success. The country's most popular drinks tended to be spirits, and the quality of its beer was generally very low. But Guinness's business boomed, and by 1767, he had been elected master of the Dublin Corporation of Brewers. Hmm. So, that's impressive. 
By the time Guinness died, almost 40 years later, so he lived a long time, his brewery was turning out some 20,000 barrels of the black stuff every year. By the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, it was the biggest brewery in the British Empire. Wow, that's awesome. I've been outside of the Guinness factory. I have not been in it. Same. Yeah, I was 15, too, so it's not like I was Yeah, I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't understand the gravity of the situation. Uh, and we could have drank too because you, you can yeah. drink over there, but I didn't go in. The key to Guinness's success was his embrace of porter, a drink that for decades had been associated with London Street and River Porters. It was dark, heavy, made from roasted barley, and much more flavorsome than the thin ales that was associated with Dublin's brewers. Contrary to popular belief, however, it has evolved considerably since then. Who knows whether or not Arthur would recognize his drink today outside the bottle that even today carries his signature. Hmm. I need to look at a bottle. I didn't know I had a signature on it. I would not either. I, I'm not a Guinness drinker. I'm not a beer drinker. Mm-hmm. So That's a little fun little nugget that happened in December. Um, I did find a little piece of random trivia. 10 million imperial pints of Guinness are sold every day in the world. Wow, that is a large number. And then on St. Patrick's Day, that jumps up to 14 million pints on average. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's a lot of beer. (laughs) I like the pageantry of Guinness. Like when you pour a pint, like the way you pour it. And like for those that don't know, like you you have to hold it a certain angle and then you Mm -hmm. have to like let it sit so it settles to the bottom. And like it's a gorgeous beer. Yeah, no, it's super cool. They actually have the lease you can see in Ireland, which I, I'm assuming is in the factory. Yeah. Maybe tour stuff. I didn't do a tour. I should have. Yeah, I really, really want to go back to Ireland, like a, like me and Terry or something, and like tour the fac- fac- factory. Haha, <laughs> I can't words. <laughs> they are hard. They are yeah. so hard. Yeah, I would love to do that too. And, so much I didn't see because I was a kid and I didn't know what Hi. I was, you know, missing. Oh, okay, cool. It is. Uh, Dion has been there and the lease is in the museum section of the factory. So cool. That's thank you. Yeah, yeah. I would like to do that. All right. Want to jump into the emails? Hell yeah. Email. I can get my mouse to work. It's being slow today. If you guys want to send in an email for next month, that's historicalafpod at gmail.com. I'll say it again at the end. <laughs> I'm going to pick Emily because it looks short. Okay. Because <laughs> I got the breathing problems. Okay. <laughs> it's my asthma. All right. So Emily says, here's a fun little piece of personal history. My father's side of the family settled in Kentucky about 80 years before the Civil War. When the war broke out, their farm was raided by Confederate soldiers. All their preserved food and ammunition was stolen. So what did my family do? Well, they set up a trap, of course. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. They created an outside cellar with a false floor. The, The walls were lined with canned goods and would lure the scavengers in. Once they were in, they would unbalance the floor, causing it to cave in and trap them. I love this. That is it worked, amazing. It worked so well. They did it twice. And after that, they were never bothered again for the remainder of the war. 
Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have a photo as I haven't visited the family farm in decades. But as far as I'm aware, there are still two stone cellars with just a pit inside. That That is brilliant. I love this. I'm assuming they let the people go, but I like, <laughs> I just want to pretend that they didn't. <laughs> well, there's just like bones down there, like in a scary movie. Just- yes, or like there's like pikes down there <laughs> with all these bones. Very Vlad the Impaler. Yes. What a badass family story. I love that. I'm so happy I read that one. Oh, I'm so glad you sent that in. That is so entertaining to me. (laughs) That is amazing. I wish I had a family story like that. Me too. I think my grandmother was a witch, but like nobody will actually call her a witch. (laughs) There's that. She did some real witchy stuff. Well, that's still badass, too. That is, yeah. Like, she, my dad has asthma, too, and she um, cut some of his hair off and nailed it to a tree and told him when he grew taller than where she nailed his hair, he would grow out of his asthma. And his mom was Pentecostal and really religious and believed in demons, and she, like, freaked out and made his um, his grandma take the hair off the tree. Oh, no. <laughs> my dad never outgrew his asthma. Oh, no. That could have been the thing that did it. Exactly. We'll never know. Yes. All right. I'm going to do Lizzie because it says from the Ozarks. And I am from the Ozarks. (laughs) The town where I grew up is chock full of crime, like crime on Dateline special scale. (laughs) There have been quite a few. Here's a sampling of a few and the ties that I have to all of them weirdly. Oh. I mean, it's one of those things like Springfield's pretty small. Not like small, small, not like Norfolk small, but it's, there is a lot of crime there. I remember I used to go to a club, <laughs> call it that. It was like the cowboy. And like, uh-huh. one that I didn't go, somebody just got shanked right outside the door. I was like, ah. <laughs> like a requirement of any club called the cowboy. <laughs> I don't know. They're all sketchy. Yes. Yeah. There was one in Little Rock too. Yep. It's awesome. Saw some shit there. Got sent out in the parking lot of that one. (laughs) All right. So the first one is the Springfield Three. Three women who disappeared, two of which were my age, and one worked with my dad in his office. So this is, um, she added links and a little bit from each link. So I'll have all the links in the show notes if you wanted to read more. So the Springfield Three refers to an unsolved missing persons case that began on June 7th, 1992, when friends Suzanne, Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, and Streeter's mother, Cheryl Levitt, went missing from Levitt's home in Springfield, Missouri. All of their personal belongings, including cars and purses, were left behind. There were no signs of a struggle except a broken porch light globe. There was also a message on the answering machine that police believed might have provided a clue, but it was inadvertently erased. Oh, that's crap. <sighs> I hate when things like that happen. Like the one thing of evidence they accidentally delete. Ugh. That just makes me. My cynical brain's like somebody works on the police department and they accidentally yep. on purpose did it. <laughs> yep. In 1997, Robert Craig Cox, a convicted kidnapper and robber, claimed that he knew where the women had been murdered and that their bodies would never be recovered. Neither their whereabouts nor the remains have ever been discovered. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. And she even made the or put the link to the ID special. So you guys could watch it, too. I actually remember this because they had billboards 
we didn't have mall malls. We didn't have stores. So we'd have to go to Springfield for like school shopping. And there was billboards everywhere trying to find them for years. Hmm. It's like without a trace. And everybody was looking for them. Like it was it was wild. I'm going to have to watch that now just to. Yeah, I am too. Because I was so young when that happened. I remember it, but it was, what was I? Uh, like eight. Yeah, it was eight when it happened. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. George yeah. Ravel. It was a murder that had a messed up trial and took place at our family's country club because we're bougie. <laughs> oh, I want to be bougie. Jealous. Okay, so this is from AP News. A former banker and small-town mayor who testified that a masked intruder shot his wife and was convicted today of killing her to collect an insurance policy. When are husbands ever going to learn that collecting insurance is going to point straight to you? It's always a husband. Remember that whenever I come up missing, it was Zeke. Right. (laughs) Your FBI agent listening. Just remember that. I, what is it? Um, Chrissy Teigen says she puts a thing in her pockets being like, John did it in case something happens to her. The ultimate troll. Okay. Can't get remarried if you're in prison. All right. So Mrs. Ravel was shot in the head in the couple's bedroom. Ravel testified that an intruder killed her during an attempt to extort money from the bank where he was vice president. In his closing argument, Bill Wentz said that the client was innocent. Quote, it ain't true. It didn't happen. He didn't kill her. You can tell this is uh, the Ozark. It ain't true. That's the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The prosecutor, Kenny Holsoff, in his closing argument countered, quote, cannot be counted on to tell the truth at all. Among other witnesses, an alarm company technician testified that Ravel's account of how his alarm went off that night wasn't possible. Bank officials found irregularities in their books after the shooting and asked the FBI to investigate. In April, Ravel was indicted by the federal grand jury on 18 counts of embezzlement, misapplication of bank funds, and money laundering. So anyway, this dude pleaded guilty on in June to 17 of the 18 counts and agreed to serve 27 months on those charges. That doesn't seem like a lot. No. He was accused of embezzling 53000 from the bank that he worked at. And a minor amount from the town of Fremont Hills, where he was the mayor. Mm. Um, his lawyer says that he stole the money after the home he and his wife built went $150,000 over budget. Well, you should have planned better, sir. Wow. Because of uh, pre-trial publicity, a jury was chosen in Henry County, 110 miles to the north, and brought to Ozark to hear the case. So that's also a small town thing. You can't get any type of jury because everybody's going to know you within like five county radius yeah like i had a friend from high school that got shot and killed and they had to move him out of state because like the guy that did it because there was no way anybody in north arkansas didn't know about it yeah i had um federal jury duty when i lived in benton arkansas and i had to drive to hot springs and the uh, case that we heard was from 60 miles away because it had to be done outside of like because they couldn't find an impartial jury yeah Whew, okay and so the last one says but this is the one that has a possible sex club ghost build. Uh, <laughs> when i was in high school my chemistry teacher was best friends with the other chemistry teacher john feeney he would come into our class all the time i didn't know why but he made me uneasy 
It was just creepy. Several years later, Feeney's family was found murdered. His wife and two little kids. They charged mm-hmm. him, but they could never break his alibi. He got acquitted and is in Brazil or some shit now. It's fucked up story, and I'm putting links in the story below. Wow. Yikes. So there's a bunch of links, and I'll put them in the show notes. And it says, as you can imagine, rumors went wild. One thing that came out was that all the teachers at the high school were having affairs with each other. One teacher's wife testified that she was put under mind control to go to the lake and have sex with Feeney. We were all like, it's called beer, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like you, Lizzie. We should be friends. (laughs) It says, anyway, one of the rumors that went around was that the teachers all had a swingers club and an apartment set up where they had a sex dungeon. Okay. Your high school experience is on another level than mine. <laughs> like, actually really close to my high school experience. <laughs> like, I know my home ec teacher and band teacher, like, hooked up, but that's all I know about. Jesus. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, wife swapping at my high school between teachers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was never confirmed, but as you can imagine, there was a lot of speculation. What was super awkward was that my parents were teachers. Shut the front door. <laughs> Bury the lead, why don't you? Right? I didn't see that coming. My mom was talking about this and made this comment. <clears throat> well, if there was, no one invited your father and I. That's a likely story. That's what right? you to your kids. Yes. She's not going to tell you. And then she said, after I finished vomiting, I said... <laughs> But you wouldn't have gone. She said, well, of course not, but it's nice to be asked. (laughs) (laughs) Included. So there you go. It's nice to be asked. Stay scary, Lizzie. Oh, Lizzie. Lizzie. (laughs) Wow. Springfield's hopping. It is, right? I'm impressed. Okay. So I'm going to read Madison's. She says, hi there. I'm emailing you late, both out of poor time management and reservations. I've spoken out about this a lot recently, and it's landed me in some hot water. After a couple of glasses of wine, I've found some courage to keep talking. Okay. I support this. I fully support this. My hometown of Columbus is a very interesting little dot on a map deep in the heart of Texas. Columbus is a lovely place, almost picturesque. I don't know if it's possible to find a more quaint and visually appealing small country town. However, we, I say we because this town, my parents' generation and my generation have yet to make an atonement for the sins of the past. We have a stain on our community, a stain that runs so deep and so bright, we cannot push it aside or cover it up. My town is known for a horrific hate crime. Oh, no. Columbus murdered two teenage boys after accusing them of an atrocious crime to which there was little to no evidence supporting their guilt. They did not receive due process. They were victims of extreme racial bias and systemic racism that is still very much affecting my hometown. What made my town famous across the country was the response to this hate crime. Expressions of people's will. I don't want to make this email a long drawn out ordeal. I'm going to include some articles for you to review. What I will say is this. Since 1935, not a single goddamn thing has been done to show that Columbus, Colorado country, I think that's supposed to be county, and the state of Texas acknowledges the crimes committed in my town at that tree by my townspeople and that we do not condone such behavior. 
In fact, quite the opposite. That oak has been subject to extreme protection and adoration. The oak sits in the middle of a highway. Again, the tree is in the middle of an extremely dangerous highway intersection. There's absolutely nothing at the oak tree to honor the victims of this crime or to educate about racial, racial injustices. Columbus is known for this tree and the townspeople refer to it without pause and quite often almost lovingly as the hanging tree. The families of the victims still reside in my hometown and for decades have been too afraid to speak out and demand acknowledgement. At this point, acknowledgement of wrongdoing may be the only justice these families ever see. I'd be more than happy to speak one-on-one about this as this is such a sore subject. Explaining on the phone might be easier. There's several layers to this story. I introduce to you the hanging tree, warm regards, Madison. And there are a whole bunch of articles. Let me just pick one and see... Okay, so one of the articles, lynchingintexas.org, and it's lynching of Sam Benny Mitchell, November 12th, 1935, Columbus, Texas, Colorado County. The age of the victim was 16. His alleged crime was murder and alleged rape. Um, He was hung. And there's a lot of articles and pictures that it's going to be easier if Kina puts them in the show notes. So let me pull a different article to see if I can read about it. Okay. Yeah. And everything will be on there. So you can find it on the show notes or our website. Okay. So here's a little blurb on waymarking.com about the tree, the Columbus hanging tree. Normally a hanging tree is found next to the courthouse jail or the town cemetery, but this one is about a mile or so away from the Colorado County courthouse. Columbus appears to be trying to downplay their hanging tree by not promoting its presence. However, there is a pink granite, Centennial Texas historical marker at the base of this tree, noting the formation of Colorado County. I take this as the county acknowledging that this tree does play a role in the history of both Columbus and Colorado County. The officials around the time knew this location was suitable for such a marker and probably hope it helps minimize the remembrance of what the tree was used for. A few days before Thanksgiving in 1935, a mob took two black teenagers aged 15 years and 16 years old who had confessed to raping and killing a white teenaged girl, 19 years old, away from the local sheriff and hang them both from the branches of this tree. This unconventional mob rule method of passing judgment, whether truly guilty or not, sealed the reputation of this tree as the Columbus hanging tree. So basically these teens, whether they were guilty or not, they confessed and then were taken by a lynch mob to this tree and it's not being acknowledged per Madison's email. And so Madison is speaking out about this and it's landed her in some hot water. I applaud you. Yes. Because you just can't stay silent on these things. And it looks like I just Googled it to see how close I was. And it looks like a very historic town. So this town has a historic society and they should know better. Yes. And like not acknowledging something like that doesn't lance the wound and help heal. I think that it's a disservice to any historian to whitewash history, especially something like that. That's God. It just, it gets all over me that people pride themselves on having hanging trees in this day and age, like cut them down. If we're taking down Confederate statues, why do we still have hanging trees? Yes. 1000% yes. That. There's no place in our society to continue to glorify things that are symbols of racism and hate in this yeah. country. There's just no, there's no room for this anymore. There's no, 
We need to face it. We need to acknowledge it. We need to be loud again. We need to be super loud. And it's a really difficult history to write. So I get the, why a lot of towns just leave it out because they don't know how to approach it. But there are so many examples, especially plantations, how they're rewriting everything to be H more truthful and more transparent history of just the atrocities that happened. And yeah. I think that a lot of people need to kind of follow their lead and not try to sugarcoat anything. Cause I think a lot of people are like, well, we all know it's horrible. We don't need to talk about it, but no, we have to talk about it. Well, and why would you alienate the families of the boys that were hanged by continuing to ignore and not acknowledge mm-hmm. and like make amends? That's awful. Oh, it hurts my heart. <laughs> no, it hurts my heart so bad. But I do thank you so much for yeah. and and letting us know about this. You're so close to me and I hadn't heard about this but like I said just glancing at your town it's super historical and there was a museum and they should know better there's yeah but if you want to too you can write them you can write historical associations and suggest you know rewrites that plaque like this plaque shouldn't be here to commemorate a tree that was used to murder children yeah or at least if you're going to tell the history of this tree don't leave out a majority of this history Yeah, or don't, like, acknowledge that it's a historical tree, but don't acknowledge what the history is. Yes. You know, there's, like, once something is established as a marker and they print out that thing, that doesn't mean that's it. You can redo it. You can rewrite it. You can submit new evidence to the historical societies. (sighs) We live in such a time that, like, even Emmett Till's plaques get vandalized constantly and it's like we are not living in a world free of racism or free of these atrocious acts i mean even this year there's been several lynchings yeah acting like weren't like they weren't racially charged so i think now more than ever this is so important and people have to talk about it yeah have to do something that's so thank you thank you thank you And I'm so sorry that you're getting flack for doing the right thing. Yeah. Makes me want to throat punch some people. I know. Like, I I just want to come to Columbus and, like, fight for you and fight with you. Give you a socially distanced hug. Yes. From from an appropriate um, amount of space. Yes. Throw some hands. Give fake hugs. (laughs) Okay. Yes. We'll do Holly. All right. So it says, I kept meaning to send this, but naturally I'm getting ready for work at 5 a.m. And it slips my mind by the time I would even type this out. When I was a sophomore in high school, my mom had moved back to her hometown from Albuquerque where she was living because of our family situations. I moved out of my dad's house to live with my mom. The house she rented was near one of the junior high schools. The first summer there, I had really gotten into ghosts and supernatural stuff. Hard to relate. I joined a Yahoo group about... Oh, you remember Yahoo groups? <laughs> Oh, man, yes. I have completely forgotten about groups. Me too. Oh, I'm just memories flooding back. So I joined a Yahoo group about ghosts and just expanded my horizons when it came to this stuff. Didn't help that the cat I had, Penny, was always being weird in my room. That's always telltale when the cat's being weird. Yep. Just sage, burn it down, something. (laughs) 
<laughs> the heater vent was by the window. He always acted as if something was in there. Oh, no. Oh. He would stare at it and even try to play with whatever was there. Oh. Oh. Kitty, voids are not friends. <laughs> voids are not friends. Also, in one of the corners of my room where my daybed was, he would never lay there. I had a daybed, too, as a teenager. I would even toss him in that corner, and he jumped away immediately as if something had was going to attack him. Uh. Oh, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I had got a new bed and put it in a different area of my bedroom. I had woke up one night and was half asleep, but I swear there was a man standing over my bed. Uh. I am not sure if it was the same summer or whenever the movie The Others with Nicole Kidman came out on DVD, but I kept thinking the house was haunted. That was a good movie. That was. I like that movie. I haven't thought about that in a hot minute, but it was a good movie. Sometimes the front door would just open on its own. I got in the habit of saying it's the ghost of Bob. (laughs) (laughs) At one point, one of my friends let me know that the grounds, oh no, the grounds that junior high was on used to be a cemetery. It's all coming together now. Yep. I checked with my mom and she did confirm that a long time ago, the area used to be a cemetery and was bought out to be built into a school. There's literally a whole movie about why that's yeah. bad idea. And this is definitely after Poltergeist. Yes. You know, we, we know better. Flash forward after my mom and I moved out, she tells me the family that had lived in that house probably five to ten years prior, the husband had been in jail. He got out, I'm assuming release, but we'll speculate wildly. <laughs> Went home to see his kids and wife. Well, wife had a new boyfriend, a fight broke out, and the husband... Oh, God. Fight had broken out, and the husband died in the driveway. Yikes. Oh. Bob. The husband's name was Robert. Apparently, oh. Bob short for Robert. Coincidence? Yep. I think not. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> well, that was a twisty twist. Oh, man. You saw a, a darn ghost. Yep. <laughs> oh, that was a good spooky one. Okay, I'm going to do this one um, for Michelle. Okay. All right. Because I read the first line and I got really excited. All right. <laughs> oh, okay. Story from my hometown. I knew one of the daughters. Her sister dreamt her mom was dead in the freezer, checked the freezer, and she was right. <gasps> so creepy. <laughs> it was Jesus. on the episode of Unsolved Mysteries too. So we have that going for us. Oh, my God. So this is from AP News that Michelle sent from Plymouth, Michigan. A daughter haunted by nightmares about her mother's 1985 disappearance pried open a locked basement freezer and found the woman's battered body, prompting her father's confession to the slaying, police say. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Leonard Tybersky, who told police he kept the body in the freezer for three and a half years because he loved his wife and didn't want to part with her, was charged with murder, authorities said. It has some indications of Edgar Allan Poe and even some Alfred Hitchcock, said District Judge James Garber, who arraigned Tybersky on Tuesday and ordered him held without bond in the Wayne County Jail. Garber delayed scheduling a preliminary hearing until Tybersky, 45, underwent psychiatric tests to determine whether he was competent to stand trial. Tybersky, dean of students at Detroit's McKenzie High School, had cooperated with police investigating his wife's disappearance. 
Dorothy Tiberski. Um, also, side note, I have an issue with the fact that they didn't even name the victim until right now. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. Dorothy Tiberski was 37 when he reported her missing on October 2nd, 1985. Tiberski passed a lie detector test and hadn't been considered a suspect, police said. The case, treated as a missing person report, had been closed for two years. But disturbing dreams by one of the couple's daughters led her to suspect her mother's body was somewhere in the house, police said. Kelly Tiberski, a 20-year-old art student in Michigan State University, had nightmares or dreams or whatever you want to call them that her mother was in a place where she couldn't move, either tied up or locked up, said police detective Richard Promorski of Canton Township, a middle-class community 25 miles west of Detroit. She didn't suspect her father until she remembered the freezer had been used before her mother's disappearance and the key to it had disappeared, he said. Lady, lady, later... Detective Keith Light Lazar said the daughter's dreams gave way to suspicions when Tybersky began making up stories about why the key was missing. On Monday, she pried the lock off the 15 cubic foot freezer while her father was away, police said. She found blood on the lid and sides and her mother's clothed body bent over meat wrapped in butcher paper, police said. That's fucked up. Oh, my God. Kelly Tybersky and her 16-year-old sister, Kim, called a friend who drove them to the police station, ignoring their father as he returned home, detectives said. Police obtained a warrant and arrested Tybersky. Later, Tybersky told police he killed his wife during an argument on September 28, 1985, Pomorski said. It appeared he felt sorry for her, Pomorski said. He kept her in the basement for three and a half years. His reason was that he loved her. He didn't want to part with her. Tybersky's daughters appeared with him during his arraignment, but did not speak with reporters. The cause of death remained undetermined pending an autopsy, Lazar said. The couple had been married 17 years when Tybersky reported his wife missing. Police said Tybersky told them his wife had left with the clothes on her back after an argument and that she told him in late October 1985 that she planned to settle in Toledo, Ohio. Police had no reason to suspect foul play because people leave home all the time, Detective Lieutenant Larry Stewart said. We did some relatively minor checking. Very minor. (sighs) Tybersky passed a lie detector test and later told police and neighbors his wife had moved to Ohio and that she might have left because of emotional problems stemming from the death of a sister, Stewart said. That is nucking futz. Wow. That is insane. First of all, she's goddamn psychic. Yeah. Also, how terrifying would it be to keep having those nightmares and then once you know you're right. Yes. Oh, my God. That is a long time to keep your spouse in a freezer. Also, is it terrible that, like, my thought was, I can't believe they didn't use that meat? I mean, it's fair. Like, how many freezers did they have? Nobody went in there? Like, Yeah. That's intense. Awful. You have officially blown my mind. Right? Like, I'm so mind blown. Like, I don't even know what to say because I'm just like, holy shit. Yeah. Reality is awful. I can't believe it was even like an unsolved mystery. Yeah. That's nuts. I want to find that episode. Ooh, if you find it, let me know. I will. All right. So this last one's not as sad. Okay, good. (laughs) Sadness. And then we just got real sad. I know. It got super heavy. All right. So this is from Tyler. 
says, hello, here's a kind of morbid crime. <laughs> I promise you it's not that bad. It's kind of a morbid crime that happened in my current town of Padua in Padua, Italy. Padua is famous for many things. Padua. but in the, Huh? Padua. Oh, right? I just Google pronounced it. Oh, okay. Never mind. Here, let me I'm do it again. I'm throwing off 10 things I about you. Go on. Let me make sure. I listened to this before we started. Do we have the correct oh. pronunciation? Of well, you don't know. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Let's go through it. It's just like, do we have the correct? Well, I was trusting you. Jesus, Google. Okay, anyway. As we know, I'm a hillbilly and I get things wrong if I'm wrong. I'm so sorry. Okay, so Padua is famous for many things, but within the Catholic Church, it's known for St. Anthony of Padua. We have a huge basilica where they proudly exhibit his tongue, jaw, and vocal cords. Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. In 1991, three armed robbers entered the basilica. Oh, dear. (laughs) Stole the jaw of St. Anthony. Oh, my gosh. It was found a day later in Rome, but I always find it funny to imagine the reason why someone would steal a jaw. Here's an article about it. It's in Italian, but you can translate. Okay, I tried, so we'll see how it goes. It didn't translate very well. <laughs> so, fun fact, St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost things. And even though oh. I am not conventionally religious... I do a bastardized prayer to St. Anthony when I lose things. So if I'm trying to find something, I say, Tony, Tony, look around. Something's lost that can't be found. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Yes. Like, it's my favorite thing to do. And I tell everyone about it because, I mean, it it works. So St. Anthony died from edema in 1231. And when he was exhumed in 1263, he had totally decomposed except, curiously, for his tongue. The tongue was reportedly just huh. as wet and incorrupt as it had been in life. Ew. When he was celebrated for his or- yeah. Oh, because he was celebrated for being quite the orator. Okay. Oh, okay. This makes more sense now. Yeah. So... He spent most of his life roaming Italy and France, giving sermons that captivated all his audiences with gripping power. He was canonized not too long after his death, but it was 30 years later when he was dug up to be reburied in a new basilica that his miraculous tongue was discovered. Now, the tongue, as well as his jawbone, are both displayed in the Basilica of St. Anthony in Padua in an elaborate gold reliquary. Why can't I say that word? Reliquary is like a really hard word. It is really hard. <laughs> the rest of his remains are entombed in a separate chapel. The 13th mm-hmm. century church itself is an incredible sprawl of architectural styles. So, well, yeah, St. Anthony is the patron saint of lost things in hopes that he might help them find what they're looking for. Oh. I'm telling you, there's like a legit St. Anthony's prayer that you can do, but I do the bastardized version and it totally works. That's really fun. That's interesting that that just didn't decompose. Yeah. Uh, they call it the incorruptible tongue of St. Anthony. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I'm glad they got it back. Yes. It didn't seem like they took the tongue. They just took the jaw, but that's still, that's a intense thing to steal. There was probably like some billionaire out there that wanted to grind it down for virility like they do with mummies or something. It's probably, yeah. People be weird. Yes. 
relics are weird anyway. But I find this one interesting because they like actually know it's his relic. So that's really fascinating because a lot of times people are like, we think this is this thing and we're going to say it's this thing. But like they legit know this is his tongue and his jaw. Yep. Hard to tell what's real or not because in the Middle Ages and people made a lot of fakes. Yep. Womp womp. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't trust it if like my family passed it down. Like, this is a piece of the crucifix. I'd be like, okay, grandma, go back to bed. (laughs) Yeah. Or like the last episode, somebody had a piece of Edgar Allan Poe's coffin and made it into a cross. That'd be a cool relic. That would be cool. How'd you get that, granny? Well, I stole it from a dead man. I don't even want people writing on my Facebook wall after I die. Like, please don't take a piece of my coffin. (laughs) So anyway, thanks guys for sending in your emails and joining us for another extra AF, the last one of the year. We're going to be so kind and welcoming to 2021. Remember... Scream Jumanji at midnight on New Year's Eve. <laughs> All together. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. And if you want to send in a story for the January extra, that is historicalafpod at gmail.com. Yes. We'd love to hear it. Yes. yes and yes. Uh, tell us what you did to bring in the new year, too. Like, what did you do to bring in good luck? What's your resolution? Yeah, I would like to know that too. Yeah, I'm like super nosy. I just want to know like your whole business. Yeah, everything about you. Please tell us everything. We're friends and we need to know you. Yes. Everything about you. (laughs) In a non-creepy way because we're totally cool. Oh no, I'm a little creepy. (laughs) Oh, you guys have a fantastic New Year's Eve. Stay safe. And uh We'll see you. See you next time. See you on the other side. Okay, buddy. (laughs)